This is Dirt Cheap from Neon Hum Media. I'm Jeffrey. And I'm Amanda. And we are reading Chapter 7 of Murder in the Glass Room by Lester Fuller and Edwin Rolfe. I changed the order up that time. What do you think? Just kind of mix things up? I like it because it probably makes one of them mad. Uh, Amanda, do you remember what happened in the last chapter of murder in the glass room? (laughs) So from what I remember, Phil was going to this like kind of dilapidated old like network of bungalows in one kind of complex to right. to suss out some information about someone that was in Edna's address book. Right. Uh, he did it super poorly by pretending to be a census taker with like just writing on an envelope with yeah. like no insignias. And so anyway, what seemed like a great opportunity to like dip turned yeah. into Phil deciding to rent an apartment yep. in this building uh, it, where it, everyone now knows yeah. it's truly galling <laughs> if every other indicator <laughs> before this didn't show us that he was a head-ass individual. Uh, all right, Amanda, you ready for Chapter 7? I, I believe yes. The sun had been pouring down on the canvas top of the Lincoln, and it was as hot as a furnace inside. At Vermont, I stopped for a red light. The driver of the car behind me hadn't seen the signal change, and he crashed into me. There wasn't much damage, but our bumpers were locked. In a minute, a crowd gathered from nowhere. Everyone offered advice, but none of them did anything to help. I jumped up and down on the bumper until I started to sweat. Then I noticed a cop coming over. I heaved hard and luckily the bumpers came apart. I jumped into the seat and threw her into first. Somebody yelled after me, but I cut around the corner and got mixed into traffic. For the first time that day, I realized that I was as conspicuous as a red circus wagon in the convertible. I had to get rid of it. So, in the last chapter- that makes him too obvious. Yeah, well, for, yeah. First of all, I right, not just, his, not wow. his, his crazy behavior, not the fact that he's like literally like jumping up and down on a car, but, but his it, the convert, which he just literally was like, this convertible saved my life. If it hadn't been for this convertible, this lie that I told would have gotten me into a lot of trouble. Next chapter, I need to get rid of this convertible. This that's fucking albatross me. on my neck. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I drove into a parking lot, paid the man 35 cents, and pocketed the ticket. Walking away, I felt as if I were seeing the car for the last time. 35 cents he paid for parking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the 35 cents for parking. Well, I I wouldn't mind paying for parking so much if it wasn't so expensive. I agree. Can I be, can I be frank here? 35 cents I would pay. $10, $20, that's a lot to pay. So Neon Hum's studios are in downtown LA. And we drive here and we park 
And thankfully, Neon Hum reimburses us for parking because we'll, we're here for what? Like two hours to record an episode yeah, yeah, on average? Yeah, two hours, maybe three. $20. That, $20. 20 big dollars. And thinking about the direct line from 35 cents to $20. I mean, even if you'd calculate for inflation, it doesn't get you to $20. I, yeah, even with inflation, it's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to get to the other side of town, so I grabbed a streetcar and rode for a while. Then I walked two blocks to make sure that nobody was following me. I came to a faded yellow, ground-hugging bungalow. The beautifully trimmed lawn and privet hedges were the only things that set it apart from the other houses on the street. Rosa opened the door herself. Rosa! Rosa. Rosa's here. Shit. Yep. Do you think she will be described? <laughs> yeah, that is a very funny question. <laughs> I already know the answer because I've, I'm a, I am two chapters ahead of you. But what do you think? Do you think that he will go? That as we remember from previous episode, he described Rosa as big and warm. Yeah, he called her big and warm. So I literally am just imagining like a ball of light, like it's just like a floating orb of light with no features. <laughs> She had on a wrinkled and stained cotton house dress, and her hair was rumpled. The sun glared in her eyes and made her squint. But the minute she saw me, her whole face woke up, and her arms went around me. I leaned against her as she held me, feeling her warmth and her bigness. Okay, so we're going to finally meet Rosa. Um, And I did some test records with our producer, Carla, and she played them for the Neon Hum media staff. And uh, they didn't go over great. My The answers ranged from hilarious yeah. to, hmm. <laughs> Maybe not so much. Um, so I'm not going to do accents. Uh, these are Spain accents, Andalusian accents. Um, but I am, uh, I am no trained voice actor. I'm no Billy West. You're just uh, a boy from Buffalo. I'm just a boy from Buffalo, New York. Somebody was like, give him a podcast. And I was like, sure, why not? So anyway, uh, so I'll be doing uh, Rosa, you know, in just a uh, in a regular voice. But you can imagine at home uh, that she is from the Andalusian region of Spain. Baby, baby, she said, you never can stay out of trouble. Then she pulled me into the house. It was filled with yellow roses. You hungry? She asked. You want coffee? I shook my head. It's bad, lover. Love? Whoa. <laughs> okay. I guess uh, lover is, a, is like her a- mom pet name for him but she calls him lover now lover? like remember I mean again Spain that may be a Spain thing <laughs> okay I don't know it seems like an affect maybe uh though yeah. I am thinking back to that flashback that Phil gave us in one of the earlier chapters about um how Rosa like took him and they flitted off to like wine country or something and right. like a cottage for months. It's like, how do you not do something like that and not be fucking? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, so yeah. I don't know. Part of it's me is all... like, maybe there has been some kind of intimate relationship between them at some point. It's bad, lover, 
she said quietly, and then went out into the kitchen. In a minute, she came back with a bottle of bourbon and some ice and soda. She kept the soda for those visitors who preferred it. She herself never mixed her drinks, and the ice was a special concession to me. I looked at the bottle. No scotch? My friend don't like scotch, she sighed. I mixed myself a drink. Rosa took the bottle from me and poured half a jigger for herself. In answer to the question on my face, she said mournfully, My friend will like me to drink in the afternoon, but I don't want you to drink by yourself. Through the open window of the bedroom, I saw a pair of oil-stained work jeans thrown carelessly over a chair. Rosa's friends were the mainstay of her life. Sometime way back, the first had been a married man. They had loved each other, but his wife wouldn't divorce him. That lasted for three years. The next one stayed almost a year, and then the periods of friendship became shorter and shorter. Rosa herself couldn't remember them all. Their faces and their beings were all mixed up in her memory, and it was only in odd moments that she recalled that Mike had had curly black hair or that McGinnis was a fancy gent who worked in a library. But Rosa was no tramp. All this was no matter of commerce for her, and it wasn't a question of morals or ethics either. No more honest or essentially religious person ever lived. It was just that she was so generous and so careless about herself and the way she gave things to people. There's so many contradictions here. Uh, yeah. He the, like just say you like Rosa <laughs> and move on with it. Like, what are we learning about Phil? From the way that he describes Rosa. Yeah, and I mean, it's Phil, like, well, look, this book is through a misogynist lens. Yeah, it's how he would judge her if he right. didn't know her and love her so much. And and uh, him knowing that doesn't change the way he sees that either. No. <laughs> doesn't inspire him to think differently. But, like, what's great is the, the rationalization uh, is that she was just so generous that right. it, so ge- she has so much love to give that right. she couldn't help it she needed to like what if hmm. women uh-oh <laughs> like to fuck no what if women <laughs> no. no taking the key out of that machine of would the like to machine. receive pleasure and attention yes. as well absolutely when she'd first found me a kid going crazy in the world's squirrel cage She'd been big and blonde and beautiful. By the way, I just, I want to point out the world's squirrel cage. It is something. The world's squirrel cage. That is something. It's one of the most accurate things I've heard, even though it doesn't, I don't know if it makes sense back then. (laughs) It sure does now. (laughs) I'll take it. By the way, there's some other words to describe Rosa here. Blonde. Yes, I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, yes, again. I don't know that we knew her hair color. We did at this not. Point. Yeah. We assumed, based on the information that the authors gave us at the time, that Rosa might be brown, like right. might be like an actual like woman of color. Now we're confirmed that she's definitely from Spain, and you know, like a lot of uh, Spaniards, uh, they, yeah. she is blonde. Uh, right. So this is just you know uh, a white woman with huge tits. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Be right back. 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. And we're back with Phil and Rosa. She'd been about 29 or 30 then, although she never admitted it. Over 21, she would say to those who asked, her blue eyes direct and smiling at her joke. Now, 15 years later, she looked the same to me. She had put on more flesh, but it didn't show because she was big, very big for a woman, about 5'9 or 10. There were a few vague strands of gray in her hair, but I knew they would be attended to the next time she could get to a beauty parlor. So, <laughs> does... There's so much does, does, up and down assessment of her body. Do you think, Phil, when he says big, he means tall? That's what I'm now slowly gathering. <laughs> like, again, our ideas of these characters. Like, I have, like, a Gumby in place for every character because that clay is going to get remolded. <laughs> like, I guess height back then. Right. I mean, we, we didn't eat as good, and we all had fetal alcohol syndrome or something. So, like, we were all, like, short. Like, most people were kind of short. Right. So, like... So, I guess if a so woman was tall... So, I guess being 5'9", 5'10", in the 40s would be like, oh, look at this Amazon walking down the right. street. Anyway, even though Phil would love to spend 20 more minutes meandering through his memories, Rosa's going to bring us back. You can always count on Rosa. Her vehemence cut into the haze of my brain. Edna? I asked. She nodded and repeated. That woman needed killing. She was no good. Then she got what she needed. She took another sip. I know all about it, Chico. But it's not in the papers yet. I got it from a friend. They're looking for you. Who? I asked. But Rosa only shook her head reproachfully. I'm sorry, I said. Crumbs of an earlier meal were still on the table. Rosa regarded them with interest and used the edge of her hand to push them in a straight line. I hated that one, she said in a matter-of-fact voice. All the time you were with her, I knew she was like poison for you, but I didn't say. You wouldn't listen anyhow. About how to blow your nose or to do your homework, yes, you would listen. But with women, no. Like that time with the little Sierra girl when you thought I didn't know and you wanted to run away and marry her? And all the time, she was carrying on with the whole neighborhood like a bitch in heat. Yes, I said. I can sure pick them. She must have forgotten her friend's advice because she poured another drink for herself, this time a full hooker. Now they're fine combing the town for you, she said. You're a murderer, they say. What did you expect? You call them up in the middle of the night, leave your fingerprints all over the phone? And after slapping that one's face in Riley's last night? What did you expect, Chico? Who told you that? I got it all from this friend. Your friend's not a cop? Yeah, Murdoch. Everybody knows 
Murdoch. Everybody's friends with Murdoch. Murdoch has endless time to like be in cahoots with randos. <laughs> did she? Did he not know she also knew Murdoch? Is this it's, a surprise to it him? It seems like Rosa would know most people he knows. That's fair. Yeah, right? I think so. But the weird, the weird, like trying to make it a reveal and like being <laughs> at all surprised—very strange. She looked at me sadly. No word of rebuke. Nothing in her face except a deep anxiety. I felt that I had to explain, and I started to, but she stopped me. They're saying you killed her. I know they lie, she said. Thanks, Rosa. Who did it, Phil? I'm not sure. I'm trying to find out. Good, Chico. Rosa, I said. There's something I've got to know. Something that ties up with this killing. Did you ever hear of a George Stanley? Her forehead creased into a thought frown. Names had always been hard for her. I've got to know if he took a plane from the airport yesterday afternoon for Washington. I've got an idea about somebody who can find out, she said, and went towards the bedroom. In the book, it just says said said, which is a funny typo. Uh, said said. Double words are like, God, that's like one of the easiest typos to catch. I'll get dressed right away and see if this person's around. Who? I called after her. She stopped and turned around. Carlos, she said. Carlos was the owner of the Spanish restaurant in whose kitchen I had first met Rosa. Small and fat enough to be called El Gordito by his intimates, Carlos was a fiery little Andalusian who had long ago skipped out of Spain just one step ahead of King Alfonso's civil guard. It's so funny how white people have an infinite capacity to be racist to other white people. Right. It's like anybody. Just who's going to, who can I throw under the bus to make me feel good today? <laughs> and like, it's so fascinating to hear how Phil describes Spanish people. Yeah. It feels so confused. Right. Well, you know, what we call quote unquote white today it's changed. It's not the same group of people. Exactly. <laughs> Whiteness white in changes 1945. to suit its political needs. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the tribalism and animosity like among different groups of European immigrants was like still, I guess, happening. So yeah. and maybe, Sp uh, and maybe uh, Spain the folks were also uh Spanish folks were also in that in that same boat. I guess so. Weird, weird stuff, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had been among the first to return to his native land to fight against the fallen histas. So admittedly, I did not know what the fallen histas were, who the fallen histas were, but Carla, our producer, looked it up for us, and we learned some interesting history. So you have the fallen histas, uh, who were the Spanish fascist movement of the 1930s. Uh, they were sort of a parallel to what was happening in Italy and Germany and elsewhere at the time. That makes sense. Yes. That he would go back home to fight the Nazis. That sounds like he's good people. I like Carlos. Sure hope so. So far, so good. His 50-odd years hadn't prevented him from joining and becoming one of the leading members of the small group of Dina Materos, who had stopped the enemy's tanks at the approaches to the Puente de los Frances, the Frenchman's bridge, in the defense of Madrid. Carlos is the man, I said. Good, said Rosa, smiling. Another thing, I called after her, 
There's a blonde young punk called Tommy. I think his last name's McEwen. Can you find out where he went after he left Riley's last night? I'll tell Carlos, she said. Okay, so Phil asks his mom to figure out, like, about two random dudes. Like, I want you to get me information on two random dudes. And she's like, I'll get Carlos to do it. And all we know about Carlos is that he fought bravely, you know, in uh, World War II. But we're missing a crucial piece of information here, which is why would Carlos be the person who has this information? Is Carlos a detective? It's a great question. <laughs> you know what? Carlos also knows Murdoch. <laughs> it's, okay. That's, it's all just a bunch of people who know the same guy. <laughs> so Carlos is... Uh, I'll ask Carlos to ask Murdoch to get the information that you need. While she was dressing, I picked up the phone. Most of the apartments at the towers had their own private phones, but I didn't know Shelly's number. I called the house switchboard. Miss Callahan, I said, muffling my voice a little. A minute passed while the operator rang. She doesn't answer. Is there any message? Do you expect her? Not until late. Please tell her that Mr. Johnson called, I said. HO 1168, Stanley, Office 11, P 2468, German, Lunch, 115 St. Regis. I looked at the list in the little black book, and I felt like a girl at her first football game. Uh, Oh, because she's not paying attention to football? I think it's that she's a fish out of water. She's like, And doesn't understand, or is like, needing to follow closely. I thought maybe... It was that she was like bored and like looking at her right. appointment book that while the game sense. was going on. But to yeah, win- all little girls love to bring their appointment books. <laughs> That's right. So they can do work, <laughs> get work done. They can be productive. Oh, yeah. Well, they have to, they learn to be secretaries right. in preschool. That's it's secretarial school. The next notation, Muriel, was still a blank. As far as I could remember, Edna hadn't ever mentioned the name. Shea Adele was the next notation in the book. My watch said 416. There was still time to make it. What kind of idea association it was that made me remember the 50 grand at that moment, I didn't know. But remember it, I did. So he does have the 50 grand still in his wallet. Yeah, I was like, what? Oh my God. Because he was like my dwindling watch. He's like, he he has like, hundreds of thousands of dollars by today's standards in his pocket. And he's like complaining that he had to spend 50 for the, for the rent. It's like, it's yeah, he's a miser. That's how he's, yeah. He holds onto his bucks. He's got a scarcity mindset in every single regard, which makes, I guess, which makes sense, but still it's just like really funny, like to have that much money and like he just remembered that he had that. But if if I had that much money on me, if I had fifty thousand dollars on me, it's all I could think about. I would no matter the I circumstance. I would just stand frozen. Right? <laughs> like, can anyone see me if I don't move? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. Blend I'm hot in. right now. I don't know. I got I've got a lot of heat on me right now. I don't like it. <laughs> I took the wallet out of my pocket, opened it, and rifled the bills in it. It looked all right and felt all right. Rosa came out of the bedroom in a white and blue print. 
the flowers in the design were too big to do her figure any good. It's like, what if Rosa just wants to wear that? What I if know. she's what if and she's, this the worst part is this is how he thinks he's showing his care. Right. And concern for her. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking gross. Oh God. Phil. See you later. I won't be here. It's safe. I know, but I've got some unfinished business. Then come back later. I told her I had a place. She studied my face for a moment to see whether I was lying or not. All right, but don't tell me. It's better I shouldn't know where. We walked out of the house together. Phil, she said as we reached the corner, sometimes you give me heartburn. Rosa, no one deserves her. No one deserves her. Now, the internet, the dirt cheap internet is talking about Rosa. The dirt cheap web? The dirt cheap web is talking about Rosa. Oh, laid on me. So we've got a fan theory about Rosa. Now, we've been talking about some of the suspects in this murder. We've got Professor Stanley. We've got Tommy. Yes. The boy. The boy. The boy. But uh, Chloe has an interesting theory. So Chloe says... It really feels like the authors are setting up Rosa as a potential suspect. Oh. Like, I don't necessarily read her as a suspect, but I'm wondering if that's why the authors made her more of a promiscuous character, like to get the audience back in the day to be totally against her. Because there is that one line where she is like, Edna was bad for you or something. And I feel like readers would be like, oh, she was jealous of Edna, and so she murdered her. I don't think that, but I was thinking about it, and I was like, maybe that's what they thought the audience back in the time would have thought. It's fascinating theory. It's a really good theory. Ah, there's a lot to consider here. I think she's probably right about, like, the misogyny element of, like, going— you know, I, yeah, she's promiscuous, but because she's my mother, I know she's good people. Well, the funny, but like, of course, right. on the reader end, they'd be like, oh, who is this Spanish hussy who, <laughs> who dotes over our lovable boy, Phil Norris, who well, we love and identify oh, with? Oh, yeah, we love Phil. <laughs> Phil's our hero. It's 1945, and we identify with this protagonist. Absolutely, 100%. The, I, I, and also, also, Rosa does say the line, she needed killing. I was, yes, yes. Which is definitely she something like, that a suspect was, would say in like a classic like murder mystery. Like, she needed killing. <laughs> I was, you know, she was somebody who wanted, but I didn't kill her, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it really is great. Like, she passionately says, like, she was no good for you. And then she needed, that woman needed killing, I think is what she said. Yeah. It's, it's, you're right. I mean, now, Chloe doesn't think she's a suspect. What do you think? Do you think she should be considered a suspect? I I think Chloe is on to something that maybe she was being, that maybe Rosa is being set up as a red herring. We want to hear your fan theories. Uh, send them to us. You can tweet at us at Dirt Cheap Pod. We're on Instagram too. Yeah, we're on Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Or you could email our producer, Carla, Carla at neonhum.com. Send us those fan theories. I want to know what you think. We'll read them on the air. Be right back. So we're back. Phil has just left Rose's house. 
I decided that the bus was safer than a cab, so I walked over to Sunset, avoiding the main thoroughfares. The sun pressed down on me like a giant paw, pushing my shoulders towards the sidewalk. I remembered that I had had no food since the coffee with Murdoch that morning. No food and too much whiskey. The bus was packed, as usual. A fat woman in front of me was trying to read a newspaper by propping it up against the back of the man in front of her. I glanced over her shoulder. There was no story on the front page about the murder. In LA, murder was always splashed over page one. It got AAA priority over everything except anti-Russian propaganda. And here, the police had been on to the story for at least 14 hours and still no break. Why they were sitting on it worried me. I didn't get a seat until we hit La Brea. By then, I didn't have far to go. I got off at Tahini, and there in the middle of the next block was Shea Adele. I tried the door, but it was locked. I wrapped my knuckles against the glass. Then I noticed a small card in one corner of the window. It said, hours, 10 to 4.30. I looked at my watch. The hands read, 5.12. By shielding my eyes from the sun, I could see the dim interior. It was swank, all right. There were several Second Empire sofas and chairs and numerous small coffee tables, their tops covered with gold-tooled leather, but the place was empty. If there was anyone there, he must have been hiding under the rug. There was nothing else to do, so I walked back to the street. I glanced into the window of a Yi Eat shop on the corner. I went in and called Shelly again from the closed booth in the corner. She still hadn't come in. It was as good a time as any, so I ordered a plate of ham and eggs. It was only a quarter to six when I finished, and the operator at the towers had said that Shelly wasn't expected until late. I decided the safest place would be a movie, so I cut back east, keeping to the quiet side streets. I sat through a double feature, the newsreel, and selected shorts, and it still was only five after nine, so I sat through the whole show again. The show didn't seem to be much of a draw because the balcony was never more than half filled. At one time, a big, hard-looking man came over and sat down next to me. I thought he might be a detective, but after he got to laughing at the jokes coming from the screen, I breathed easier. He doesn't know this, but this is actually the laughing detective. So, yeah, he he shouldn't have let his guard down. Amazing. <laughs> it was midnight when I left the theater. Again, I walked up the side streets until I was opposite the back entrance of the towers. I knew there must be cops swarming all over the place. On the long shot that I'd turn up, the wide garage doors were open to the street. Inside, there was a dim overhead light. And from where I stood across the street, I could see a hundred tiny reflections of the bulb dancing on the smooth hoods and clear windshields of the parked cars. I knew the garage attendant went off duty at midnight. After that, the tenants had to park their own cars. The place looked empty, but I waited a while in the deep shadow of a tree. There seemed to be no sign of life at all. To make sure, I threw a pebble on the concrete floor. It bounced and rattled halfway in. I was pretty sure that if there had been someone there, he would have come out to see what was making the noise. This is an incredible plan. Abs- another this one of Phil's. This is a true MacGyver genius this right is, here. His plan was to throw a, a pebble <laughs> and then somebody would be like, oh shit, the pebble noise. <laughs> I gotta- what was that? <laughs> yeah. But nobody showed. 
I started to cross the street. When I was about halfway across, a siren shrieked. Coming up the street, I jumped as fast as I could, vaulted over a hedge and hugged the ground. The wail kept coming, getting nearer and nearer, and sounding shriller and shriller. My fingers dug into the wet grass. Then it was on me. My heart pounded like an ak-ak gun. Ooh, an ak-ak gun. Assume it's like a Tommy gun or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that like must be what it gun. is. Yeah. Or an Admiral Akbar gun, like he's, <laughs> like his he, he loves Star Wars. He called it. He knew what Admiral <laughs> Akbar was before George Lucas did. The tremble stopped, and I crossed the street again. I went across the concrete garage floor, ready to run at any show of life. I found the service elevator. It was a big, modern freight cage with automatic self-service buttons. I got in very fast and pushed number seven. The starting motor made a soft whirring hum, but it sounded like an air raid signal to me. When the door opened on the seventh floor, I held it there for a minute while I scanned the narrow service hall. There was nobody in sight. I pressed the basement button and moved up the hall, hearing the hum of the descending elevator behind me. I tapped the bell button on the service door of room 707 as gently as I could. There was a soft rustling noise inside, and then Shelley stood there, dressed in a long, clinging robe. I pushed in and leaned against the door with my back until I heard the lock click shut. Yeah, he broke into Shelly's house. Yeah, that's what I'm piecing together right now. Wow. So he just fucking went straight up into her house. She's like in her nighty. Yeah, shoved shoved her into her own home. Yeah, like get, get in. I'm locking the door behind us. Yeah. Yeah, great night for Shelly. Great oh, yeah. night. This, this is, is going exactly to be... how she planned it. You bet. Yeah, she. It was like she was going to stay in. She had a great book. She was a, a horrible man's going to barge into her hor- home. My least favorite neighbor is going <laughs> to <laughs> lock himself in my home with without my permission. He made, he made himself wanted for murder. Right. And then came to my fucking house. Yeah, like that's. Yeah. What would you do? What would I do if somebody barged in like that? And it's someone you know, but not like a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'd be, I would be very freaked out, especially if this was a person who is like covered in grass stains and mud and like, you know, is is barged into the home. I'd probably look for a blunt object of some sort. (laughs) Amanda, what do you think of chapter seven of Murder in the Glass Room? I feel like, angry and sad at the same time. Like, I'm not sure why any of these choices were made. Yeah. But it's hilarious that they were made. Absolutely. And he is only tripling down on worse and worse decisions (laughs) as we go. And I cannot wait for the next chapter because now he is in Shelly's apartment with no consent. No consent. Freaking the shit out of her. I'm just shaking my head violently. I (laughs) I don't understand any of it. It's hilarious. I got to tell you what you're feeling right now 
uh, double it for the next chapter. Fuck. The, there is a good reason why the cover illustration is uh, is this scene is the scene that just happened of Phil barging into Shelley's apartment. No, um, there is a there is a <laughs> That's good terrible reason. news. <laughs> this, this this next scene is easily the wildest scene I have read so far in the book. Uh, you're, 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 and to the authors, it was like their trailer moment. They're like, put that shit on the cover. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> I'm going to give it to the publishers here. They knew what they were doing. Um, that is, it was the right choice because what happens in this scene will, uh, will shock and amaze. Look, I don't want to build it up too much, but I'm also going to build it up like crazy. <laughs> So you always say, like, you need to gird yourself. Like, yes, definitely I'm, get girded. Yeah, I'm, I'm in high gird. Get in high gird. We're, this is a high gird alert. Yeah, that's, uh, that's coming up next time on Dirt Cheap. Excellent. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs>